So John 16 concludes Jesus' um, instructions here in this uh, discourse to the disciples because chapter 17 starts his high priestly prayer. So you shift from Jesus talking to the disciples to Jesus talking to the Father. And he wraps it all up with these things have I spoken to you that you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. But he tells them that this cheer and this peace and even this victory does not come apart from sorrow. There is sorrow. There is, even in verse 32, failure. There's troublesome. There's worrisomeness. But through this and beyond this, there is joy. So how does this come about? How is Jesus going to give them joy and tribulation? Comfort and cheer in sorrow, peace, even when they fail. Well, the answer to this is their joy, their victory, their peace, all is outside of them. It's, it doesn't come from within. Because if it came within, they would not have peace, they would not have joy, they would not have comfort. If it came from the world, they would not have peace and comfort. But this, it all comes from Christ. And so as he wraps it up, he, he continually throughout these chapters have been pointing the disciples back to Jesus. And here in the end, once again, he points them back to himself that you, you, you will have peace, you will have joy, you will have comfort, you will be of good cheer, you will have victory, but not in what you do and not in how great your faith is and not how strong you are as Christians and not how mighty you are in the word, but your faith and your joy, or your strength and your joy and your comfort will come outside of yourself and come in Christ. So Jesus concludes this, telling them that their sorrow will turn to joy. But how, how is this to come to pass? Well, the disciples in verses 16 and 18 ask a few questions because they have some confusions about Jesus' words. Jesus tells them in verse 16, a little while you shall not see me, and again a little while and you shall see me because I go to the Father. So Jesus says, a little while you won't see me, and then a little while you will see me, because I'm going to go to the Father. And so the disciples start talking amongst themselves, because they're confused. You, know, you and I have confusion about Jesus' words, and there is some encouragement here, I believe. Um, when, when we come to a, a passage that we don't understand, the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying. The apostles who heard Jesus preach and speak more than any other human beings upon the earth, were confused by what Jesus was saying. And it wasn't because the words that Jesus speaks are hard and difficult to understand. They're not big words. They're not confusing words. They just weren't able to grasp the spiritual truth of the matter. I was reading a commentary, not on this, but another one uh, this morning, um, on another passage, and I read the introduction of the commentary, and there was probably 50 pages talking about whether or not that book was really God's word and whether or not it should have been included and, and how they had, there were speculations about um, people writing, writing it after the fact and, and adding things and subtracting things. And, but as far as the words of the commentary, the words of the scripture, they knew what the words meant. And they could tell you more about the Hebrew of behind the Old Testament passage than I'll ever begin to even come close to understand. They had a great intellect, 
uh, for the for the languages and history and, and that kind of thing. But they didn't understand the plain meaning of the text. Um, some of the the men that were referenced because they didn't have a spiritual understanding. They could understand the words, but they didn't grasp what the Lord was saying because they didn't believe it was God's word. So it's not an intellectual problem that the disciples had here. Their problem was they just didn't understand the spiritual aspect of that. And so whenever you and I, who love the Lord Jesus and love, uh, love his word, come to a passage that we don't understand, we can just stop and, and say, we know that the, the apostles didn't understand everything either, so I don't need to be um, distraught that I don't understand that the apostles did. And we also see that Jesus kindly instructed them. Because they asked, the, first they talked amongst themselves, and Jesus in verse 19 knew they were desirous to ask him. They, they had questions about it, so Jesus comes and says, all right, I know you have questions about this, so I'm going to answer them for you. He didn't scold them for, he didn't say, well, you guys are, are being silly, or you guys are too dumb to understand, or, or you guys are lazy because you, you haven't been paying attention. But no, he kindly instructs them. God is patient with us. And God is long-suffering with his people. And we don't learn, we won't ever learn everything about the Bible. And it seems like the more that you learn about God's word, the more that you understand there's, there's things that you didn't even know about. All right, so you might think that you have a pretty good handle now. And then in 20 years, you might come back and say, well, I didn't even know anything back then. That, that there were questions I have now that I didn't even know to ask back then. The, the, the depth and the breadth of God's word is, is uh, limitless. But the Lord is long-suffering with us and doesn't expect us to be saved and to know everything right off the bat. If God expected that from us, then he would provide that for us. But God in his providence has allowed us and has ordained for us to be taught and come along day by day, year by year. That's the way God wanted to do things. So if that's the way that it's set up, and we know that it is by studying how he uh, has trained, set up the church, and has given the commission to teach, I mean, that's a great commission, not only just to go to preach the gospel, but to teach. That's God's plan in this. So God understands that we don't know everything. I mean, it's really part, it's part of his plan that, that as we gather together and hear the preached word, that, that by and by we'll learn more things. And, and as you study God's word, you'll, you'll learn more things. That, that's built into it. So we can take a little bit of comfort that the disciples just didn't understand because we don't understand and the Lord doesn't reject um, his own for not understanding some things about the scriptures. I think it's also interesting to see that the disciples were, were humble enough, really, to, and not embarrassed to ask each other questions. Now, they didn't ask Jesus, which would have been the best thing for them to do, to ask the Lord, but, but they went and they said, do you understand what he's saying? Do you know what he means by a little while you'll see me, then a little while you won't see me? You know What's he mean he's going to go to the Father? So they were talking amongst themselves, some of them were, to see if the other person knew. And so I hope there's nobody here that would be embarrassed to ask somebody else a question. 
you have a question about something in the Bible, um, don't be embarrassed to ask somebody else. Don't be embarrassed to ask someone else in the church if they have the answer. You might ask somebody else and they say, well, I don't know, I've always wondered that myself. Or you might ask somebody else and they say, well, you know, I, I wondered about that many years ago and I, I sat down and I studied. I talked to a preacher one time and I asked him about something and he said a few, many years ago that he had sat down and he said he wasn't going to stop studying this particular subject until he came down on a conclusion on the matter. One way or the other, he said he's tired of sitting on the fence. And so he's going to find out what, he's going to get to the bottom of what he thought this passage meant. And he spent many, many, many hours studying this. And so I asked him about it, and I, I was able to glean from his study, and, and it, it, it helped me. So don't be ashamed or embarrassed to ask, as the disciples didn't, um, because they didn't understand. And they thought, well, maybe somebody else doesn't understand. And it turns out nobody did. It turns out that no one understood. And so that's when Jesus comes and gives them some understanding. The confusion was around Jesus' plans. They were trying to make sense of the world apart from the gospel. Or as I read one man said they tried to, they was trying to understand Jesus apart from the gospel. And you can't understand Jesus apart from the gospel. How many people are out in the world today want to understand Jesus as a teacher, or Jesus as a moral instructor, or Jesus as a guide for political, um, political means, but they don't understand Jesus as Lord and Savior in the context of his death, burial, and resurrection. There's a YouTube video I saw a man made, and uh, it was one of the one some current event that was going on, and everybody was saying things such as. Uh, well, Jesus, if Jesus was alive today, he would do this, and Jesus was alive today, he would do that. And, and the point was, people who didn't believe in Jesus were calling Christians hypocrites because they didn't support this political uh, viewpoint. And uh, the pastor made sort of a parody, and he said, well, do you believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again from the dead? Because if you don't believe that, I really don't care what you think his politics were. It doesn't matter. Because if you don't believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, then you don't know, you don't know the first thing about Jesus. And so don't bring him into it if you don't even believe the truth about him in that first principle. Well, the disciples here were trying to make sense of what Jesus was saying apart from the gospel. Apart from the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, they would not understand, you shall not see me, and then you shall see me, and then I go to the Father. Apart from the resurrection, they, they could not grasp this. They had a framework of what they thought was going to happen. The present victory of Jesus or the kingdom coming at this time. But, but that doctrine, that view that they had, doesn't fit with what Jesus was saying. And so now they're a little confused. It makes sense to us as we read this because we know he's about to die and to be buried and to rise from the dead. So we can read that and say, well, yeah, of course. But they didn't understand it because they didn't have, they, they were starting out from the wrong spot. Have you ever bought something from a store and you had to put it together and it's got instructions and 
You say, well, this is pretty simple. Why do I need instructions to put this together? And so you toss the instructions aside and say, well, this is common sense. All you have to do is just throw these things together. And you start putting them together, and you get halfway through it. And you say, now, how do they expect me to get this piece right in the middle when it's already closed off? And, and why do they have three of these extra parts over here? And things start getting confusing. You can't figure it out until you say, you know what? I started off wrong. I wasn't supposed to put this piece together first. I was supposed to put it together last. And it wasn't until you stop and say, I have to start all over because I started out in the wrong direction. I have all the parts laying here, but I, I have the wrong way of looking at it. Now I have to start over with the right framework, and then all the pieces will just fall together. So I, I've done that many times and, and humbly had to take it all apart and, and start over again because I had the wrong framework of, of what it was. Well, the disciples had the wrong framework. Their theology was just a little skewed about what Jesus was doing. And they had the truth, and they had their way of looking at it, but the two things didn't go together because they were looking at it wrong. And so Jesus is correcting their, their theology. Now that's hard, that's a little disorienting and confusing when that happens. But the wrong thing to do is just press on and say, well, I, I'm right, and i got to figure out a way to make this right. You ever known anybody like that, that, that they're wrong, and you show them they're wrong? But instead of saying, instead of just admitting it, they just press forward and would rather be wrong and would rather um, press on in error than just to say, I was wrong. And let me just start over and get it right and do it the right way um, because that, it's hard, it's troublesome, it's disorienting. But we see even the disciples ha had to do this. Even the disciples had to learn. And even the disciples were, were confused about things. So really, they had, it boils down, they had two questions. What did Jesus mean by a little while? What does he mean that you'll see me and then you won't see me? There's lots of ways that could have happened, but, but they, they just don't understand what he's talking about. And then the second question was where he said, because I go to the Father. What did Jesus mean by he was going to the Father? If he dies and goes to the Father, how are we going to see him again before he goes to the Father? And if he... If going away means he's going to die, then how is he going to go to the Father after we see him again? See, all these things were confusing because they didn't, uh, they didn't have all the pieces together. So really, everything that remains after that is Jesus addressing mm -hmm. those two questions. A little while, the question about what's a little while mean, and the question about him going to the Father. So, starting in verse number 19, if if you just keep those two things in mind as you read that, you'll see that Jesus is answering those questions. He's responding to them. Now, he didn't answer the question as to the timing, the date of the little while, but he answered the, the, the gist of the question. So he tells them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, in verse 20, Ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your 
Sorrow shall be turned to joy. Now he's going to give an illustration of how that works. A woman, when she's in travail, where she's, here's a pregnant woman who's about to have a baby, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for a joy that a man is born into the world. And so, verse 22, he takes what he said in verse 20, he takes the illustration, and now he applies it. And now you therefore are sorrowful. But I will see you again, your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. You're going to have weeping and lament. The world will be rejoicing. But, but you, disciples, your sorrow will be turned to joy. So here's the illustration of just a normal birth, no complications. You know, it's an illustration after all. There's, there's always... Um, Outliers, but you know, all things being normal, you have the illustration of a pregnant woman. She's about to be delivered of the child. She goes into labor, and it's called labor for a reason, right? It's not called um, going into joy. She's going into labor. The Bible calls it travail. There's a reason why we use those words. And there's pain. Um, until recently, that was how it was described. She was delivered of the child, that she is delivered of the travail of her, uh, of her pain and her sorrow. And so there was no, there was tears and sorrow and pain. Many in the moment, that is, that is what's consuming but after the child is born and she sees that baby, she's rejoicing. The love and the joy of having that baby puts the pain and the sorrow on the back burner. It doesn't mean it wasn't real sorrow. It doesn't mean it wasn't real pain. But the fact um, that she holds that baby in her arms, the fact that she holds that child and sees that baby who she brought into the world. That joy supersedes the pain and the sorrow that came before that. And you see uh, pictures I, I saw one the other day of, uh, of Krista and the baby they, that she uh, helped deliver, and just the joy in the mother's face. Uh, the, the joy, and, and that's why those pictures are so precious, because you see... You can just see the joy in the mother's face of, of seeing her child and, and seeing the child that she had been carrying for uh, those long months and the joy of, of bringing the child into the world. Well, Jesus says, you disciples are in the labor part. You're about to go through great sorrow and great travail. The world is going to be rejoicing at the death of Christ, thinking that they had the victory, but the disciples, they're going to mourn. Christ, the, 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 the enemies of Christ are going to say, we beat him, we, de we defeated him, he's gone, we don't have to deal with him anymore. The disciples are going to weep and lament. They're going to be confused. They don't know what's going to happen. But then, when Christ rises from the dead, and they see him again, then there's going to be a joy 
that no man will ever be able to take away from them ever again. They, so- they will sorrow, but then there's going to be the joy that supersedes that. That'll make them, that'll, they'll put this sorrow that they feel on the back burner and put it in context. Now, when Jesus dies, someone goes to the disciples and says, cheer up. Why? That, that's not going to help them, is it? This kind of sorrow. That wouldn't be a very wise move for a husband, would it, to go to his wife and labor and tell her to cheer up? <laughs> that, that'd be maybe a deadly uh, thing to say there for the husband. But why? Because he's in the great travail and great sorrow. But Jesus said your joy is not going to come from the situation. It's going to come outside of you. It's going to come from me. Verse 22, Now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and no man takes this joy from you. No one can take this joy. There isn't anyone or anything in the world that can take this joy from God's people. And so now we, as the children of God, um, participate and have the same very joy, because the source of their joy was outside of themselves. It was Their joy was not in their circumstances. Their joy was not because of their faithfulness, because they were unfaithful. Their joy was not on how strong that they were. Their joy was not in material things. When Peter was so sorrowful, he was sorrowful while on his fishing boat. A little later on in John, after Jesus had died even after his resurrection, before he had been restored, his, his sorrow was, was still very great. So I'm just going to go fishing but uh, go back to work. We couldn't find joy in his work anymore. He couldn't find joy being out on his own uh, boat. He couldn't be joy finding joy out, um, earning a li- There's nothing in this world that could bring him joy now. It was all in Christ. His source of joy is the risen Christ. Our source of joy comes not from within ourselves, not from the world, but from the risen Christ. We find joy in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So one aspect of this message Jesus is telling them is he's going to die and rise from the dead, and his returning to the Father is the work of redemption on their behalf. So it's not just dying, but also rising. I mean, they understood that people die, but it was the resurrection that they didn't grasp. They'll be sorrowful, but they'll also see him again and rejoice. The basis of our hope is, and the basis of our joy this morning is the work of Jesus Christ. But I think we can take this principle and just carry it on. Because after Jesus rose from the dead, they saw him again, they rejoiced, but then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So for us, we love one whom we have not seen, as Peter says. And we all want to see him and be with him. But we have this joy in the resurrected Christ that not only are we saved, but we will see him. So this makes sense in the connection what Jesus says in response here in a second. But we find joy in looking to the resurrected Christ, knowing that he will return. We have sorrow in this world, but we have joy in the resurrected Christ. 
as it says in Titus 2.13, we're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our blessed hope. In uh, 2 Timothy 4.8, you and I cling to longing to see Him again, or see Him the first time. As the disciples, when He was gone, longed to see Him, and had the joy when they did see Him, we long to see Him face to face. So it says, 2 Timothy 4, 8, Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but to all them also that love His appearing. There is a crown of righteousness awaiting every child of God who longs to see him face to face. And I don't know, um, I think that's just, that's just everybody. Because if you love Jesus, then you long to see him. You long to see him return. And Paul said there's a crown of righteousness that He's going to give Paul. And when he wrote this to Timothy, Timothy may have thought, well, yeah, of course. You're going to have a crown of righteousness. You're the great apostle Paul, personally called of Jesus Christ, personally saw him with your very eyes. Um, you saw the resurrected Christ commissioned to do a great work. Countless people saved through your ministry, churches planted through your ministry, of course you'll have a crown of righteousness, Paul. He says, and not to me only, though. Not to me only, Timothy. Not to me only, child of God, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Because that crown of righteousness is not based upon Paul's righteous works but of the, the righteous judge. That crown of righteousness is given to those who trust in Christ and long for His appearing because they believe in Christ and, and are righteous because of the work of Christ. It's a crown of righteousness given to those, it doesn't say those who do the righteous works, but to those who love the coming of the righteous one. To one who are trusting and resting in the righteous judge. So yes, there's sorrow in this world, but there is joy knowing that that crown waits us. There's joy knowing that he's coming again. There's joy knowing our sins are forgiven, that we are righteous in, in Christ, that we have eternal salvation. We can have joy in the midst of darkness because we can walk as pilgrims in these trials. We can know that there's a plan and a purpose God has for us in our suffering. Now, this is not blind optimism. You know, I'm not an optimist in the sense that I just think things are going to work out. Because I live in a fallen, sin-cursed world, and even good things eventually turn south, because that's just the way life is. Things break down. We get sick. Things, bad things happen. Because we live in a sin-cursed world. And, and to know that is to know 
that there is nothing eternal in this life that's going to stay good in the way that we want it to stay for very long. And even if there are things that are good that stay for very long, eventually we're going to have to give that up and give it to some and, and give it to one of our descendants because if this good thing that lasts may last for a long time, but we won't be around to enjoy it because we will end up dying, right? So it's not just a blind optimism, but it's faith that on what Christ has done and what Christ has promised and looking forward to his return and our glorification. So it's not a fatalism to just say, well, it doesn't matter. And it's not blind optimism just to say, well, everything's going to work out just because I want it to. But this is faith in Christ and what he has done. And to know that the darkness and the trials that I will endure are ordained by my God. And I have the promise of joy and peace in Christ because he died for my sins and rose for my justification. And he has done the greater and he won't let the lesser be undone. Paul says in Romans 8, uh, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You can take all the sufferings of this life and put it on one side of the scale, and you can take one moment of the glory that shall be revealed in us. And that glory which shall be revealed to us tips the scales, and it's not even close. And so he says that's why we, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. So we long in the sufferings of the present time. We groan within ourselves in the trials and the darkness of this time, waiting for the joy uh, and the, the promises and the glorification that God has promised. So we can take this principle that Jesus is telling these disciples about sorrow, but that sorrow shall be turned to joy. So that takes care of the first one uh, question. Let's think about the second one, because he said a little while. Well, it's the death and burial resurrection of Jesus. A little while you'll see me, or a little while you won't see me. Why? Because he's dead. But then a little while they will see him. Why? Because he rose again. Then I go to the Father. So then, after his resurrection, he'll ascend to the Father. And that's the second part of the question the disciples were talking about the end of verse 17. Well, Jesus answers this in verse 23. And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive that your joy may be full. There's nothing quite so natural for you and I as to pray to the Father. You know, that's one of the most basic things a, a child of God learns that they're praying to their Heavenly Father. There's nothing odd about that. There's nothing uncommon about that. It's the most natural thing. But that's the blessing of the New Covenant. This was really not... This was not something the disciples would have understood. Because Jesus said, You have asked nothing in my name. Does that mean they haven't prayed this whole time? No. It's just they, they, they did not have the light 
that Jesus is telling them he is providing here. You go through the Old Testament, we have a whole book of Psalms of, of saints praying. A lot of the Psalms are just prayers. And you don't see my Father, our Father. You don't see that written in the Old Testament. He is revealed to us as Father in the Son. Now, the Old Testament does have passages referring to God as Father. And I'm not saying it's not there, but we can see those phrases in the eyes of the New, Te- the New Covenant, and we can see those things. But this was very mysterious to the disciples. He is revealed to us as Father as the Son has come to us. And so he's telling them, whatever you need, the Father will provide. So that's the first thing, is he's telling them, you will be praying to the Father yourself in my name, and the Father will give you. So whatever is needed to do good works, the Father will give you, John 14. Whatever is needed to bear fruit, the Father will give you, John 15, 4 through 8. Whatever is needed to remain in Christ, the Father will give you. John 15, 16. Jesus saying, said, you can go to the Father, and the Father will give you everything that you need. He said, these things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day, ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray to the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because you have loved me, and you have believed that I came from God. Well, Paul says in Romans 8 and Galatians 4 that the Spirit testifies in us that we cry, Abba, Father. Well, that's the, the blessing of the new covenant. And Paul says that in, in both Romans 8 and Galatians 4, that walking in the Spirit and the blessings of the new covenant is, to, is that the Spirit testifies within us and we cry out to him, Abba, Father. Jesus says the day will come when this will be made plain to you. And then the Comforter would instruct the apostles who would write these things in the New Testament that we would understand. The day is coming that the, these proverbs that Jesus is speaking, these, these illustrations, that will be plain as day, like they are for us. And that day then, he said, you will ask the Father, You'll pray to the Father. It's not like in the Old Testament when the people of God wanted to talk to God and and they said, let us talk to God, Moses. Who do you think you are getting to talk to God all the time by yourself? We can talk to God. And and so they approach the mount and then God comes and then they're scared to death and they say, well, you know what, Moses, you talk to God for us. You go talk to God and you tell us what God has to say. No, Jesus says in that day you have full access to the Father. Why? Because the Father himself loveth you. Oh, what a joyous verse that is in verse 27. You believe that this morning, child of God, that the Father himself loveth you. I think sometimes Christians might think that the Father doesn't really love us. So, well, the Spirit indwells me, and Jesus died for me, but I'm not so sure about the Father. Maybe take relationships in this life and apply them back to the Father, but John 3.16, for God 
so loved the world that he sent he gave his only begotten son. So that means it is God the Father who so loved the world, that God the Father gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in the Son should not perish but have everlasting life. That it was God the Father who so loved that he sent his only begotten son. It's not that Jesus came to force the Father to love us, but the Father loved us before the foundation of the world, before the sending of the Son. The Father himself loveth us. This is what we have in Jesus Christ. We have communion with God through Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. We have communion with the Father, not a distant Father, not an uncaring Father, not a failing Father, but a Father who loved his children so much that he sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might have life. This is the Father that Jesus says you, you have access to come and ask and he'll give you anything. A Father who loves you. A Father who cares for you. A Father who will be with you. Who will not forsake you. A Father who loves you not based on how good you are, but based upon um, His love. He loves you because He loves you. And if you love Christ, you abide in Him by God's grace. You love Christ because He first loved you. And in that love, you are loved of the Father. The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So he points them outside of themselves unto God. Well, the disciples, verse 29, 30, say, Oh, okay, now you're talking plainly. Lo, now thou you speakest thou plainly. Now, you're, now we understand. Now it's clicking. Now you're, you're finally telling us. Now we are sure that thou knowest all things. In verse 31, I think Jesus looks at him and says, Do you now believe? Really? Really? Now you think that you believe? Now you think that you've got it? Well, in just a little time, you'll be scattered. A few hours from now, you're going to leave me alone. They're all going to fail, every one of them. Peter's going to start cussing and denying the Lord. They're all going to run away and hide. Some of them won't even believe after they see him again. Thomas uh, said, I won't believe unless I stick my finger in his side. Jesus said, you're going to forsake me, but I won't be alone. The Father will be with me. But these things I speak unto you, that you might have peace. Now, they're not going to have peace in their faithfulness because they're going to have to, for the rest of their lives, remember that they were faithless in this most trying time. But it's not their power, but it's in Christ. They have peace and victory and comfort in Christ, in His work, in His faithfulness to us, in His grace. In the world you have tribulation, in the world you have loss, in the world you have sickness and pain and temptation and sorrow. Jesus says, in me, you have peace. The world will be against you, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Rejoice, have cheer, not because you will, but because he did. So Jesus points to them to have peace and comfort in him. And I pray that we all have that. We look to him for, for comfort and peace. Well, um, let's, let's close in a, in a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you give us peace. I pray that you give us comfort. Help us to look to you to be 
to be sure of what you've done for us. And we know we have problems in this world, but to help us be of good cheer because you've overcome the world. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.